It seems in recent years, I don't know how much television you guys watch, but they say we're living in the golden age of television. Uh, But in recent years, it seems that Hollywood has discovered a theme that Americans are captivated by. And it is the theme of how one sin or one decision can lead to another, which leads to another and leads to another and then causes a complete spiral of destruction. And the most obvious example of this in television is the AMC hit show Breaking Bad, where you have a high school chemistry teacher who finds out he has terminal cancer. He's got a teenage son with cerebral palsy and a new baby on the way, and he's wondering how he's going to pay for his cancer treatment and how he's going to provide for his family after he's gone. And so it almost seems like a noble task at the beginning, but he begins to cook crystal methamphetamine to... Uh, and sell drugs to provide for his family and to give them a future. And what begins as selling drugs to cover the cost of his loved ones quickly spirals into murder, money laundering, collusion, lying, and in the end, what is a massive billion-dollar drug empire. And so he sets out to just simply do this thing one or two times to provide for his family. But before you even realize it, he's shaved his head, grown a goatee, and he has changed his name to Heisenberg and has become like the worst villain in television history. He got lost in his sin. It destroyed his life. It destroyed his family's life. And there are other examples. I'm sure you guys could give many. But today I want us to look at the life of David as we've been studying his life over the last several weeks. And in his life we see where one sin leads to another and leads to another and leads to another until it eventually wreaks havoc on his entire family and on his kingdom. And we're going to be covering six chapters today so we can't read it all. It takes probably about an hour to read just on your own. But I want to read the end of the story and then we'll work from the beginning to get back to this point. So it's kind of like another one of those television devices where they show you the end first and the rest of the show is working toward the end. And so I want you to take notes and then I encourage you to go back and read this entire account in its entirety sometime this week. 2 Samuel 13 through 18. It'll take you a half hour to an hour. But let's begin at the end. 2 Samuel 18 verse 31 It says, and behold, the Cushite came to David and the Cushite said, good good news, David, my Lord, my King, for the Lord has delivered you from this day from the hand of all of those who rose up against you. And the King said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? Is Absalom okay? And the Cushite answered and said, may the enemies of my Lord, the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. He had died. And it says the king, David, was deeply moved. And he went up to his chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, O Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. And so the story ends with David grieving the death of his son. And he's weeping and he's saying, How in the world did I end up here? That's the end of the story. And so now we work backwards and go, how did he end up here? And we begin, it begins actually in 2 Samuel 12, where we were last week. 
The the story of David's spiral of sin began with David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder eventually of her husband Uriah. And so David, he sleeps with a woman that's not his wife. He ends up murdering her husband so that he can cover up the whole ordeal. And then Nathan's pastor, the prophet Nathan, comes up to Nathan and rebukes him and says, why have you done such a thing? And David says, you know, David responds with what looks to be true God-centered confession, repentance, and grief. And Nathan says, you know what, David, God can forgive you. And so David responds, he says, he asks for God's mercy. In 2 Samuel 12, 8, Nathan says, David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. So even though David deserved death for murder and for adultery, he says, you know what, God has forgiven you, you will not experience death. And the punishment of the law demanded that David should have been put to death. But by God's grace, the Lord blots out David's sin, but leaves David whole. David does not get what he deserves. He deserves he deserves death, but he gets grace and mercy. And I want you to see this is the incredible nature of the God whom we serve. That he does not give us sinners what we deserve, but rather he offers grace, mercy, and full restoration. And so David receives God's forgiveness, but Nathan's words to David don't end simply there. He says, David, God has forgiven you and you will not die. But nevertheless... Although your sin is forgiven, and although God has completely forgotten about your sin, and He has, there are still going to be consequences for your sin, though. He says, David, you've brought a situation into your family that's going, that will cause psychological and emotional damages for years to come in your family. That's the nature of sin. And, David, and Nathan reminds David, he says, this is not God's punishment on you. God has forgotten about your, your mistakes. This is simply the result of living in a broken world where actions have consequences. And some of you feel this in your own life. Some of you, in your life, you figuratively walk with a limp, so to speak. Or maybe even literally because of some mistake or sin in your past. And you live your life hindered by some mistake that you've made perhaps years ago. And although God has forgotten about that sin, forgotten about that mistake, and He's forgiven you and He's restored you you still see the consequences of those mistakes still playing out in your life. And it may be that you're 15 years sober and God has completely forgiven, completely restored, completely healed you, but because of your past actions and decisions, you will always be an addict and you will always walk with a sense of humility in that area in your life. And you may still have to live with the result of broken relationships that perhaps you caused because of your addiction. Or it may be that a one-time mistake in your life, you've emptied your savings, and now you've got to feel the pain of that loss today. For all of us, maybe there's something we've done in our past that although we're forgiven by God, we still feel the consequences of it today in our real lives. And Nathan tells David, here is what is going to be the consequences of your sin. Murder, adultery, abuse of power. He says, the sword will never depart from your house. This is 2 Samuel 13, verse 10. He says, the sword will never depart from your house. Your wives will be unfaithful and your family will feud with one another and your son will die. Or your sons will die. And then the spiral of destruction begins. And this is chapter 13. And this is going to read like a soap opera. Okay, so just enjoy it. Okay, It's, it's a lot of fun. 2 Samuel 13, David's firstborn, Amnon, develops a crush on his half-sister Tamar. Okay, so it's already good, right? 
David's firstborn, Amnon, develops a crush on his half-sister. And he wants her so bad that it says he can't eat, he can't sleep. This is what the scriptures say. And he tries and he tries and he tries to seduce her, but she's like, no, you're my half-brother. This is weird. I'm not going to do that. And so he develops a plot where he draws her into his room and he rapes her. And after the act, he says, put her away from me. So he's used her, he's abused her, and now he's disposed of his sister. And it's almost like deja vu, because this is what David initially did with Bathsheba. He coerced her into sleeping with him, and then he disposes of her when he's done with her. And this is a theme that we will see repeated throughout this story, and that is David's sons repeating the sins of their father. And meanwhile, David doesn't do anything about this. His son has violated his daughter. And chapter 13, verse 21 says he was angry, but David never does anything about it. He just kind of gets angry about it and doesn't do anything. And at one point, Tamar even says, surely my father will vindicate me. Surely my father will stand for justice. Surely my daddy will be there for me when I need him. But David is a coward and he doesn't do anything. And it's crazy because here's the brave warrior who killed Goliath and stood up to King Saul And he's nowhere to be found when his little girl needed him. He's acting like a coward. Once stood up to a giant and now won't even stand up to his own son. And so David's other son, Absalom, hears about this and he becomes furious. He's furious that his dad didn't do anything. He's furious that his brother uh, violated his sister. And it says that Absalom loved Tamar. It was his sister, so he loved her. And he says, you know what, you can live in my house with me. And so he brings her in. And that day, someone who had been, a woman who had been violated like that, couldn't be married, couldn't be in society. So he says, you know what, you can live with me. And so he brings her into the house. He gives her clothing, gives her shelter, lets her live with him. He actually names one of his children after her. And he just becomes furious that his dad didn't do anything. And so he begins a scheme to bring justice into his own hands. He decides he's going to kill his brother, Amnon. So he's developed, he has a plan for premeditated murder. And his plan is to get Amnon drunk and then murder him. Once again, doesn't that sound familiar? That was David's, that's similar to what David did with Uriah. And once again, David's sin is being reproduced in the lives of his children. And this is a principle that runs all throughout Scripture, but also throughout history and throughout, you talk to any psychologist or counselor, It runs through our lives as well that sin that is sown by a father is often repeated in the lives of children. There are consequences to David's sin. Scriptures call them generational sins that affect his children. And this happens in real life today. Men, this is why counselors often want to dig into our relationships with our fathers. Men, listen, if you... You will, you can, it's possible that you can pass on your sins to your children. If you speak angrily to your wife, men, do not be surprised when your children speak angrily to others. Men, if you abuse your children, do not be surprised when they abuse others. Men, if you are passive and if you are lazy, do not be surprised when your children are passive and lazy. Men, some of you, if you keep going at the pace that you're on, working 70, 80 hours a week, constantly traveling all the time, and you overwork and you neglect your family, don't be surprised when your children want nothing to do with you. 
and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. See, these generational sins can be reversed. And we'll get to that later in the sermon. But this is a very real thing. The sins of a father often find their way into the lives of children. And so after killing Amnon, Absalom gets scared. He goes, "Uh uh-oh, I've just committed murder. And so he flees town and he's scared. And the whole time, David knows where his other son is. David knows where Absalom is, but he never contacts him, never does anything. He's passive. And Absalom, he's confused, he's scared, and he needed his dad to console him, to comfort him, but David was nowhere to be found. And eventually, Joab, I'm introducing a lot of characters, but Joab, who's essentially David's chief of staff, eventually sends for Absalom to come home. And Absalom comes back, he gets to Jerusalem, and David refuses to meet with him. He gives him the cold shoulder and actually quarantines him to a part of the city so that David would never have to see his son. And he refuses to speak to Absalom for two more years. He refuses to speak with his son. And you're like, what kind of small man has David become? Once seen as the future great king of Israel is now, he was once strong and courageous. He's now petty and weak. And David's sin here with Absalom, avoiding his son, is not that he does something wrong. It's that he does nothing. He just allows his son to just fall into despair. And as his family was falling apart, David avoided the whole situation. And he buried himself into his work. He neglected his family while it was falling apart. And so let this serve as a warning to us who are fathers. If we act as passive leaders in our family, we should not be surprised when our children act out in drastic ways to get our attention. And during these two years, Absalom tries and tries and tries to get in touch with David through Joab, but Joab never listens to him. In fact, he just ignores every message that David sends. It's like he's screening his calls, and, which is never a good way to treat somebody you love. I actually know about this because when I was dating my wife, okay, we were in college, and she was driving through campus. She drove past my house where I was living at the time. I was on the front porch with my roommate having a conversation. As she's driving by, she calls my cell phone. She sees me pull the phone out, see her caller ID, and stick it back in my pocket. I had really had to dig my way out of, that, out of that. Almost ended our relationship. Becca didn't like it when I did it to her, and Absalom sure didn't like it when Joab did it to him. And so Absalom gets ticked, and he goes and he sets Joab's land on fire, which at that time, land was where all your assets were. So he pretty much lit a torch to his stack of cash. And the family situation at this point, it's escalated to like full-on Jerry Springer level, right? So you've got fires, you've got arson, you've got murder, you've got neglect, you've got rape, all of this. And finally now, to sort of seal the deal, Absalom plots revenge on David. He's going to take David's kingdom from him. And he's going to usurp his father's authority and he's going to become king. And you have Absalom who once loved and admired his father, he now despises him. And he begins to subvert David's leadership. While David was busy doing the work of the king, he's in his courts doing kingly things, removed from the common people, Absalom starts a campaign and he gets into the city. And he starts winning the hearts of the people. Kissing babies, rolling up his sleeves, doing town hall meetings. 2 Samuel 15.6 says that Abraham, or Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. 
And after he had gained the support of all the people and even some of David's best men, he stages his coup. And make a long story short, he drives David out of the palace and as a show of his power and an attempt to humiliate his father, he not only takes his kingdom from him, but he begins to sleep with some of David's wives on his rooftop, his stepmoms. Likely the same roof where David had spied on Bathsheba from. And once again, you see David's sins being reproduced in the lives of his children. Absalom steals everything from David and then sleeps with his wife, his wives on the roof. We've seen that before. Where David stole everything from Uriah and then slept with Uriah's wife on the roof. And so David flees in shame. He's lost his kingdom. He's been humiliated. He runs away. And you're like, man, he's come a long way from slaying the giant, hasn't he? And such is the nature of sin. It destroys hope. It destroys our future. And it suffocates potential. And fast forward, David eventually gets his kingdom back. He sends out an army. He reclaims his throne. But he tells his soldiers, he says, I want you to get my kingdom back, but do not touch Absalom. Do not touch him. But Absalom sees David's army coming, and he begins to flee. And there's a really important detail that I've left out, and that is that Absalom had some hair. Okay, so he had a big, nice, bushy head of hair. And as he's fleeing, his hair actually gets caught in the branches of a tree. And he's stuck. And he can't go anywhere. And he's trying to get away, but he's trying to get his hair loose from the tree. And Joab spots him stuck in the tree. And Joab comes up to him. And even though David had said, don't touch him, Joab's still a little ticked that he set his land on fire. And so Joab takes a spear and puts it three times through the heart of Absalom. And Absalom dies. You can't make this stuff up. A dude's hanging from his hair in the tree. And David finally gets word that Absalom is dead. And the scene is heartbreaking. Chapter 18, verse 3, it says he was shaken. And this whole situation has escalated over a decade. And David is now sitting there looking at his dead son. And he's left to ponder his regrets, his mistakes, his missed opportunities, and his lost memories. And so here we are, back where we began. Chapter 18, verse 33. The king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. And interestingly, this is the first time in the whole narrative that David calls Absalom his son. Throughout the whole narrative, David has been referring to him as young man, which is such a cold and sterile way to refer to your child. But now David uses this meaning, uh, this word with meaning and emotion and relationship behind it. My son, my son. And maybe perhaps for the first time in a long time, David feels the weight of being a dad. But it's too late at this point. His daughter has been violated, his sons are dead, and he's left to ponder what has happened and how he got here. My son, my son, would I have died instead of you? So, that's the story. What in the world do we do with a story like that? Why in the heck is this story in the Bible. And I think this story is in the Bible to warn us of the destructive pattern and the consequences of sin and to help us avoid going down David's path ourselves. See, some of you need to know that the, that the spiral of sin in your life, it can stop with you. 
And some of you need to know that the destructive generational sins that you've inherited from your family can end with you. But how? That's the question. And the first thing, I think, is that we need to learn how to receive the forgiveness and the restoration of God. You see, all of us are like Absalom in many ways. We've rebelled against our Father, our Heavenly Father. And we've stolen our Heavenly Father's kingdom for ourselves. We, we seek our kingdom, not God's kingdom. And we publicly humiliate God on the rooftops of our lives at times. But here's the difference between us and Absalom. Absalom was driven to rebellion because of his father's failures. But we rebel even when our Heavenly Father is perfect and good and kind and gracious to us. And God shows us the love that David failed to show Absalom, yet we still reject it. But there's grace. Remember when Absalom came home after being gone for several years? And you think maybe that there might be a reunion of sorts in that moment, but David refuses to meet him and actually shuns him away? Jesus actually told a parable in Luke chapter 15 about our Heavenly Father and what God was like. And he says that when we come home, we're not rejected, we are received. And in fact, not only are we not rejected, but we're received, but the Father is actually outside waiting on us. And when He sees us turn and face Him, He runs towards us and embraces us. God is the Father that David never was. And our Father loves us and He welcomes us home even when we've squandered away our lives. And He rescues us. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been or who you've hurt, God the Father stands ready and willing not only to forgive you, but to welcome you and to embrace you and to love you and to throw a celebration for you. And at the end of this story, David is looking at his dead child in his arms saying, I wish, I wish I could have died in your place. And although David wanted to, he couldn't. But God does die for his children. And God does what David could not do. God gave his life for his children. The scriptures say, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God and far off from him, Christ died for us. See, Absalom died for his own sins, hanging from a tree with a spear in his side. But Jesus died for our sins while hanging from a tree with a wound and a spear in his side. And on the cross, Jesus demonstrated that He loved us enough to stand in our place. And when He rose from the dead, He showed us where this world was headed. It's headed to a place where sin and death would have no power and sin's consequences would be crushed forevermore, once and for all, from generation to generation. And God's faithfulness and kindness would extend to all generations. You see, David had moments, and we've seen these, where he's been a good king. But a good king can't save anyone from their sins. You need a better king. And Jesus is a better king. He gives more grace, James 4, 6. He gives more forgiveness. He gives more mercy. And if you want to stop the spiral of sin in your life and in the pattern of your family's lives, you must first be convinced that God can, God will, and God wants to forgive you. And you must first receive that forgiveness. And that's kind of a recap of last week's sermon. But there's another step. And that is that we've got to learn how to walk in the forgiveness of God. 2 Corinthians 6, or no, 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 Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, As you received Christ Jesus, 
so walk in him. As you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, so walk in the forgiveness of Jesus. You receive God's forgiveness, but then you let that shape the way that you live your life. And one of the things that's most disappointing about this story is that it comes immediately after the Bathsheba situation. A heinous act of murder and rape and cover-up and scandal. (laughs) And as we saw last week in Psalm 51, you see David offering these prayers of repentance to God for his mercy. And God gives David mercy. He shows him mercy. And David at one point in Psalm 51 even says, God, if you show me mercy, I will tell the world how great you are. And you read that and you're thinking, man, David is going, this situation with Bathsheba, David's going to use this to sing of the glories of God and of God's forgiveness in his life. And you think there's going to be this turnaround in David's life and David's going to tell the world about Jesus, about God. He's been restored and you think he's going to go and restore his family, but it doesn't happen. Instead, David, it seems, doesn't actually do what he confessed to God he would. He doesn't tell the world about the glory of God. Rather, he turns inward and he becomes cowardly and he becomes a shell of the man that he once was. And here's what I think might have happened. I think David truly was repentant of his sin, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. I think he was deeply troubled by it. And I think he knew that God was merciful to forgive him. And I knew, and I know that God allowed David to live. And I know that David must have been grateful to God for forgiving him and letting him remain king of Israel. David knew that God had forgiven him of his sin. But I don't think David ever forgot about it. See, I think God forgave David of his sin, but I don't think David ever forgot about it himself. And this was David's crucial mistake. God did not hold David's sin against him, but David continued to hold it against himself. He received God's forgiveness, but he didn't quite walk in it. And if you notice, as David's children grow up and they begin to pursue strangely almost the exact same sins as his father, the same sins that derailed his father's life, David never speaks up. It seems, that if da- it seems as if David felt like he had no moral authority to speak to his children on these issues. Almost like he was afraid to be, of being called a hypocrite. And see, I think sometimes many of us think that if we failed in one particular area of our lives, that we have no moral authority to speak about that area to others. We feel like we're disqualified because of what we did in this part of our lives. But what if it's the opposite? What if our failures actually give us a platform to tell others of God's grace and God's mercy? And to warn others of the destructive nature of sin. What if David would have sat his kids down and said, Kids, look, you've probably heard about some of these horrific things that I've done. And it's all true. And let me tell you what a mistake it was. And let me tell you about how it almost destroyed my life and almost destroyed your life. And did destroy the lives of Bathsheba and Uriah. But also let me tell you about my God who forgave me and is making all things new. And what if David had sat his kids down when they were young and said, listen kids, you don't have to be doomed to repeat my mistakes. The generational sin that I've brought into this family can stop with you because God is gracious enough to stop it. Church, you need to know that your sin and your past mistakes are not the final word over your life. They are not your truest identity. 
See, that was David's mistake. He allowed his past and allowed his mistakes to shape the way he viewed himself and viewed the world around him. But God wants his grace and his mercy to shape our identity. See, we're all shaped by our past in some way. And we're all shaped by the past of our parents in some way, whether we realize it or not. And in the areas where our sin or someone else's sin have kept us from experiencing the freedom of Christ, we can cling to the forgiveness of Jesus, the restoration of Jesus, and we can believe with confidence and faith that God's word over us can be the final word over what we've done and what's been done to us. And we can end the spiral of sin and shame in our lives and in our families' lives. See, I'm convinced that if David would have recognized that his sin was paid for, and if he would have taught that to his children, rather than isolating himself and looking inward and becoming depressed and full of shame, it would have saved his family some incredible heartache and would have saved the kingdom from much more heartache as well. And David would have experienced much more joy. David kind of limps in to the end of his life. Whereas I think he could have sprinted through the finish if he would have trusted on the full restoration of God. And some of you, you've asked God to forgive you for something you've done in your past. And you believe He's forgiven you. But you haven't forgiven yourself. And you haven't walked in God's forgiveness. And it's keeping you from moving forward. And it's keeping you from walking in the way that God has for you. But what you need to hear this morning is that God has paid for your sin. When Jesus was on the cross and just before he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. God has paid for your sin no matter what it is, so stop trying to pay for it yourself. And you need to learn to walk in the forgiveness that God has given you. Colossians 2, 6-7, As you received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in Him, being rooted and built up in love. As you received Jesus, so walk in Him. Let's pray.